0: What democracy looks like! Tell me what
1: democracy looks like! Something as devastating as what's happening uh, in America right now with the immigrants. You have to be as loud as you can. The fear for the immigrant community is exponential now. The Trump administration is phasing out a special immigration program, announcing an end to temporary protected status for 57,000 Hondurans Jane yesterday. Migration. We have to end. You the first Americans, A Native American came from someplace else somebody brought you controversial zero
2: tolerance immigration policy that has resulted in a reported two thousand children being separated something from their parents. that i felt a lot while doing this march his family i feel like i've known So them many families all my life.
0: rely on child care from other
2: to countries to go and to
3: ban people that have a green card
0: mm. i mean it's Crazy There is a growing humanitarian and security crisis. Supreme Court is
1: hearing arguments today in a landmark case that could put nearly 700,000 young immigrants at risk of deportation. Because of how dangerous, because of the risk of kidnappings, of extortion, now we're expected to send back tens of thousands of people to those countries at a time when things are so bad that people are fleeing those countries to try to come to the United States to, to claim asylum. I love
2: Being Hello, and welcome to Immigration and Democracy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Allsop. In this series, we'll bring you fresh knowledge and insights from the team at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard, led by our director, Professor Roberto Gonzalez, and featuring voices from the field. Join us as we get to know our neighbors through their stories. Today we'll be discussing immigration raids. We're joined by Dr. William Lopez from the University of Michigan School of Public Health and Dr. Nicole Novak from the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Bill is the child of a Mexican immigrant mother and he's the author of the fantastic new book Separated, Family and Community in the Aftermath of an Immigration Raid. His community-based research uses mixed methods to investigate the impacts of immigration raids while centering the voices of community members who survive and thrive under targeted government surveillance and removal efforts. Nicole's research is also grounded in public health. She uses epidemiologic and community-engaged research methods to examine historical, structural and policy influences on the health of immigrants, Latinos and rural residents. Today's discussion draws from their latest research brief for Harvard's immigration initiative. It's called An Unnatural Disaster – The Impact of Immigration Raids on Latino Communities. You can find this on our website in English and Spanish. In the brief, Bill and Nicole explain how immigration raids hit communities like natural disasters – tornadoes, mudslides, hurricanes – it's a striking comparison. But let's start with the basics. What is ICE? And how do we define an immigration raid?
1: So ICE stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and this is the enforcement arm of the Department of Homeland Security. There's no official definition from ICE of what an immigration raid is. They tend to call them operations or enforcement actions. But generally in the community, a raid is when ICE enters into a location in which they Um, otherwise wouldn't be expected right? to be something that is basically private space and not public space. So that includes places like homes, um, and it also includes places like work. So not work waiting rooms or or restaurants generally, but back spaces like offices or factory floors um, or where food is being processed.
2: The word raid itself, do you find that an appropriate term to describe this phenomenon?
1: I do. So I think when we think about immigration raids. what we often use the word to describe arrests that happen on the street as well and to some extent those are probably different in particular ways the way that we've used the word is to describe again an invasion of otherwise private space where ice is not to be expected this is the point of the operation is to catch people off guard to arrest them when they're not expecting it because it is a private location
2: and your research has looked in particular at the Latinx community and their response to raids. I'm just wondering for our Spanish-speaking listeners, what would the word for immigration raid be in Spanish? Is that something you've come across in your research?
1: The word is redada, just raid.
2: Okay, so it's kind of a literal translation.
1: Uh, yes. And as for why I'm interested in the topic of immigration raids, you know, it goes back to when I was working on my dissertation um, I was volunteering while I was also a student, and there was a pretty good-sized immigration raid, home raid, that happened close to us in Washtenaw County, Michigan. Since I was volunteering at the time, I was also fairly close to folks who were involved in the raid, or at least knew members of community organizations who served them and was close to their and touched with their families. So I was able to interview the folks also. You know, and as a public health researcher, One of the things that makes me want to research more deeply the impacts of these raids is that we begin to see how multi-level they are, right? So it's not just individuals who are impacted, but the families and the communities they're connected to.
2: You talk about in your book as well the difference between worksite raids and also home raids. Um, There's one particular case you talk about in southeast Michigan discussing the impact of a raid on an apartment and what that looked like. I wonder if you could just say something about apartment raids and raids that are based on individual homes.
1: Sure. So raids that are based on individual homes and raids that are of work sites, there's many similarities. So both cases you're dealing with the removal of somebody who's often the breadwinner you know the worker and the family and the communities impacted by that one of the large differences though is there are two noticeable differences and one is simply the scale so worksite raids of the kind that we wrote about here are just massive. So this is from dozens to over 100 people removed all at one time, which has huge impacts, including economic impacts on the whole town. Apartment or home raids tend to be the one or so people who are arrested. And both also match in the use of racial profiling that often occurs. So ICE will raid a facility, often allegedly looking for a person or group of people But they'll detain everybody who matches the profile, which often amounts to somebody who's Latino and often a Latino man in most of these spaces. Though we do see cases like in Allen, Texas, when the majority of arrestees were women. But one of the notable facts about home raids is the home is just where you should be safe and protected and with your family. So it's the worst violation of an intimate space folks can imagine. And, And when this happens, there's literally nowhere families are able to feel safe when their own home is invaded. The other notable difference is unfortunately, in home raids, there's often children involved. So when ICE agents are at the door, when ICE agents are cuffing people, they're cuffing parents in front of their children. On the work site, this doesn't often happen because children aren't always there. But at home raids, this has lasting impacts on everyone who's witnessing the arrest and especially the kids. I got a phone call during that class period And I wasn't able to answer it and the office called me saying my family needed to get in touch with me because something happened. And I gave my family members a call uh, asking what happened. They let me know my dad's work was getting raided, that I needed to leave school if I could. And my mom just picked me up like five minutes later and we went to my dad's workplace. And that's where I saw, in total, I saw like six vans leaving with people loaded And there's officers all around the work area and every entrance and exit there is. I think I I got a clamps of my dad getting arrested, but I'm not 100% sure that was him. But we got in contact with him. He just called us, let us know he was fine. So from home raids, a next step is looking at work raids, right, which tend to be bigger in size in these cases than home raids, and seeing how these ripple effects happen in communities, but also how communities respond.
3: Just to clarify, is this something that you're seeing increasing? Worksite raids in particular have increased over the last few years, deportations as a whole actually dropped for a bit and, and are continuing to rise slightly, but have not reached the levels of the Obama administration.
1: That's right. But work site raids, yes, have increased. We saw one in 2019. There was a series of meat processing plants, and I was in Mississippi.
3: Yeah, 680 workers in Mississippi.
1: 680 workers, yes, across a few different factories. But it also occurred on the first day of school in this community. So we see that the the impacts, you know, in this case are obvious. These children are going to be going to school and won't be picked up by the people who dropped them off. This is this large scale worksite raids. I think it's universally seen as a particularly cruel and damaging way to enforce immigration law.
2: I'm interested in this intersection of public health research and immigration control, because I mean, sometimes these fields well, they might seem to some people as quite separate, if you like. So what does the business of an immigration control measure that's delivered by
3: ICE have to do with public health? So in public health, we think about influences on people's health and people's behavior at multiple levels. So we might think about individual-level decisions that people make, um, for example, what they choose to eat, perhaps, how much sleep they get, how much exercise they get. But what we know is that those are not just individual level decisions. Those are also things that are shaped by our context. Um, and that can be something, you know, at the family level. But it can also be the way our community is set up, the built environment. And then it can be the broader policy environment that we live in as well. And so what we know from years of social science research, as well as the lived experience of communities who are affected by immigration control measures, is that they're really, really powerful forces. They affect whether people feel safe in public space. They affect whether people feel safe pursuing certain kinds of jobs or feel safe in their workplace. And those are things that end up trickling down to matter for their health as well. So both Dr. Lopez and I have spent a lot of time you know, talking to people as well as looking at data sets to think about You know, how might people change their behavior that's relevant to their health when they're fearing immigration enforcement? And there's reasons to think that changes, for example, whether you're likely to go to the store on a particular day, where you might choose to have someone take care of your child, what kind of jobs you pursue, and all the way through to just your physiological processes. So if you're under a lot of stress in a chronic way, that's something that can affect your body and end up mattering for your health as well. So sometimes in public health, we talk about looking at upstream factors or structural factors. And I'd say that immigration control measures definitely fit in that category of influences on people's health.
2: You use the quite striking comparison of the community impact of an immigration rate of being something akin to a natural disaster. That's really a rather striking image. And and I say this from Guatemala, where I'm in lockdown, currently looking at a volcano, thinking about a community that has experienced a lot of different natural disasters. And, you know, is very familiar with that kind of community humanitarian response. And then kind of thinking about those communities in the U.S. that are impacted by these immigration raids and kind of making that quite drastic comparison. I wonder if you could unpack that for us.
3: I'll say first, the comparison to the natural disaster was something that we didn't come up with ourselves. It was just repeated to us over and over by people we spoke to in the community. I think it's actually been common knowledge in communities that have been affected by ice raids for a while. So, um, I grew up in Iowa and continue to work in Iowa, Um, and actually I first became interested in immigration raids because of an ice raid that happened in a town called Postville, which is a small town in northeast Iowa, Um, and in 2008 it was the site of the largest single-site ice raid in U.S. history. But uh, the local advocates and immigrant communities who responded to that raid ended up developing strategies for raid response that were actually based on Red Cross disaster response plans. So they were already, years before we started this research, thinking through that analogy based on their own experience. And then when we were in these small towns throughout the Heartland, towns that were raided in 2018, we heard these analogies over and over again.
2: And do you think that particular metaphor is something that is impacted by where these raids are happening, by where the the communities that are impacted originally come from?
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we took with us as we were visiting the sites is often just how isolated these areas are from bigger towns. And often what happens during a natural disaster, you know, one referred to as a tornado, is that a whole community is impacted, right? So regardless of where you're living or where you're working or who you are, to some extent, you're impacted by this disaster, and the community also comes together to respond and to care for those who are impacted by the disaster. And so that's what we were seeing in these often Latino immigrant communities or mixed status communities, is that even though it would be particularly undocumented workers who were detained or, and later deported, it was the families attached to them and the communities in which they live that were all impacted. But similarly, communities don't just accept these raids. They respond, right? They respond, they take care of each other, and they do so in innovative and compassionate ways. So, you know, in answer to your question, yes, absolutely. The natural disaster comparison is one that I think was held very strongly in this Midwest heartland of the U.S. uh, landscapes that we were visiting
2: And what do these communities look like? What kind of work are are these people doing who are impacted? And perhaps you could give us also a kind of portrait of some of these community responses, what they look like in practice.
1: Sure. And I think I'll just start giving an idea of what these communities look like. Um, This is just in the middle of the U.S., right? So what we're focusing on is interior enforcement. Not enforcement that occurs at the border, but in places in everyday locations in the middle of the U.S., such as Ohio, Iowa, or Nebraska. Often these are small pockets of immigrants who've recently arrived from Central America or from Mexico, all doing one primary type of work and it often is in republican districts or at least otherwise very white districts but we do see it in republican areas and we think this is partially what leads to the ability for these raids to be conducted with little community pushback right so i come from san antonio texas and i think there are latinos in positions of power in that city right whether it's principals or government officials or but in some of these small towns Latino communities haven't been there long enough to have a lot of political power to respond to these raids. So that's one of the, I think, stark features that just stood out to me in the areas that we went to.
2: In the report, you talk about 2018 and the um, 98 individuals who were taken in after raids on 7-Eleven stores. You talk about the Mount Pleasant raid, in which 32 people were detained. Also, Bean Station, where 97 people were taken in after a raid. I wonder if you could kind of focus
3: on one of those.
1: Sure. I think, Nicole, we were probably closest to the Mount Pleasant, Iowa raid. Do you want to share some experience from that one?
3: Yeah, so this is just an example of one of these raids, but a lot of the things that happen there echo across the other locations. In May of 2018, there was a helicopter that began circling the small town of Mount Pleasant, Iowa. It's a pretty small Latino-Hispanic population in Mount Pleasant, less than 10%, um, and they tend to work at two main locations, a meatpacking plant called West Liberty Foods as well as a precast concrete factory. And people in town told us about how they started to see this helicopter circling and rumors started flying. And it became apparent that a number of state and local law enforcement agencies, as well as federal agents, were all gathering at the precast concrete plant. From what I understand, they came in during lunch and began to arrest workers. What happens often in these small towns when these raids happen is there's a long period of chaos where people are wondering um, who got arrested and who is safe. And there continue to be rumors about follow-up raids. For example, in Mount Pleasant, fear that West Liberty Foods would be raided. And then people began to respond. So a local church, the First Presbyterian Church, had already been designated as a place that children could go in case of natural disaster if they weren't able to connect with their parents. And they ended up volunteering pretty early that day that they could be the location that children could go if one of their parents was arrested and they didn't have a safe place to be. So the church ended up opening its doors, and actually, not a lot of children did come to the church that day, but there were still a lot of things that people needed to do to respond. So that evening, there was a large meeting and word just spread organically. I actually heard um, that day, just as a member of the community and as someone who was involved with supporting immigrants in Iowa, um, that there was gonna be a need for folks to come to the church that evening. And already the media was starting to gather. And so there was you know, special precautions taken by community members to make sure that nobody was exposed to media for example, photos or interviews without really wanting to be. As families came together into the room that night, we tried to figure out where their loved ones had been taken. There's not an official way that you can look up where an arrested immigrant has been detained. But one thing we were able to do is in Iowa, we don't have major immigration detention centers. So usually what happens is people are detained in county jails that have contracts with ICE so we were paging through photos um, on the digital rosters for the county jails that have ice contracts and just sitting with family members until they saw the face of their loved one and then you know it was a combination of of real sadness and also relief to, to know where they were but to also have confirmed that they had been arrested and detained that day from there The church and other advocates who are gathered helped people get connected to resources for legal representation. um, Perhaps support to get a bond paid if the person was going to be required to have a bond paid in order to be released. And other resources just to make sure that they knew what families, for example, had young children who needed diapers, who wasn't going to be able to pay rent coming up soon, things like that. And then the church continued to be sort of a focal point for that response. So we've heard there a little bit about the importance of the
2: church in that particular raid coming together to support children. What other kind of sites are important?
1: What we see after these events is this large spirit of community collaboration or of community support for those in need. And we see it from multiple organizations or multiple groups of people throughout the community. And one is certainly the church. There's many important reasons for this. One is that in the aftermath of these raids, large amounts of people need somewhere to go, and they want to go somewhere that is safe from ice, and traditionally churches have been safe from ice, so pastors and priests and other religious leaders will open their doors to these communities, and communities will meet in these churches. And many of these churches began to develop food pantries and places where families could go to get diapers, to get formula for their children. And this is what we see more of in the immediate days following a raid. The needs tend to be very, very human. You know, People want to eat. Um, they need to shower. They don't want to go home to shower. They don't want to go to the store to eat. And they need to feed their children, change their children. So we see more of these food pantries popping up, especially and often in, in churches. And another group who responded strongly was educators. The thing about immigration work raids is they happen generally during the work day. That's, that's the point. Uh, they're happening when folks are working because ICE intends to detain them at work. And with few exceptions, we know where children are going to be between the work hours, right? Between the hours of 8 and 3 or 8 and 5 or 8 and noon, whenever the raid takes place. So kids were universally at school. And so what this meant is that teachers often would hear either from social media or from another teacher that there was this raid in this factory where multiple children's parents worked. And so teachers would have to decide, well, what do we do with our students? We can't bring them home to empty houses. We have to tell them that their parents may not be there. And different schools responded in different ways, often leadership you know whether that would be the principal or the superintendent would make uh, decisions for the school or for the area on how to tell children or how to bring them to their home but we would hear stories of of bus drivers you know refusing to drop children off at, at empty homes or of teachers making sure that the children had somewhere to sleep and had somewhere to eat over the next few days when they were searching for their parents we also spoke to legal professionals other advocates, and then other groups of responders that included folks like medical professionals. And what we see also throughout these different communities is that although there were some uniformity in responses, for example, I would say churches and educators responded every time Sometimes it just depended on whatever advocacy organization was strongest in that location. So in Ohio, for example, we saw more mental health professionals and social workers, and in other communities, that might not have been the strongest organization, so there was less a response there and more of a legal response.
2: What is the responsibility of the companies here? Who doesn't go to 7 Eleven to pick up milk? You know, so where are the businesses? Where is 7-Eleven in this? If they're having their stores raided, if these meatpacking businesses are having their workers taken away, what tends to be their response?
3: Just to clarify one thing, the 7-Eleven raids took place a little earlier and were a different wave. The ones that we studied were actually, I think, in almost every case, pretty small companies and companies that tend to fly a little under the radar. So even the meatpacking plants were not ones like Tyson that are, um, you know, have many, many locations. And so in this particular case, there were a few where we've seen warrants where there were concerns about tax issues, for example, for the employers. But often it really was a raid where it looked like the tax issue was the excuse to make the raid, and perhaps there will be repercussions for the employer, but the people who for sure suffered very very quickly were the workers.
2: So the employers aren't part of this humanitarian response?
3: In some cases they were so I know of at least one community where one of the employers contributed a lot of money for bond so that people who were detained and had a bond required were able to get out.
2: And I guess I can't really finish this conversation without asking the inevitable question about the current situation uh, with COVID-19, how the current changes in policy are impacting this area of immigration enforcement.
1: Sure. And I think I'll start by continuing that conversation about racial profiling. So one of the things that ICE did after there was a picture of an ICE agent with a mask, a respiratory mask, conducting raids days after the lockdown became policy, and I believe it was California, was that ICE responded and said we are no longer going to conduct arrests except on criminal grounds. But what happens, as I mentioned, is that if there's no commitment to ending these racial profiling and what what is called collateral arrests, then anyone around the individual is going to be arrested. And uh, that's in the book. Uh, when I wrote about the the raid that happened here, there was one individual who was the target, but, you know, up to a dozen were also arrested just because they matched the profile. And so ICE can say that they'll focus on people with criminal record, but until they commit to not arresting anybody who fits the profile communities, they're still going to be worried. And this still fractures communities because you're worried about who you're next to or what store you're at when ICE decides to conduct enforcement The other issue becomes the meatpacking plants, frankly, have been sources of COVID-19 outbreaks. This is for many reasons, and Dr. Novak knows this material better than I do, but close proximity, you know, unsanitary conditions. But what we see here is, I think, one of the worst examples of U.S. hypocrisy, where we're raiding these meatpacking plants and taking people out. But now, during an outbreak, the president is using his microphone to say, no, We are keeping these open and you have to keep working. So we see these essential workers in spaces that lack regulations, you know, either working and experiencing raids at often poverty rates or now in the middle of these outbreaks.
2: And for anybody listening who might be impacted directly by immigration raids or fear of raids or perhaps they know someone who is, do you have any resources or information that might be helpful for them?
1: After many of these raids, organizations have put together toolkits and how communities can respond. So on the community level and organizational level, organizations like the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition has developed a toolkit, as has Iowa WINS, which stands for Iowa Welcomes Its Immigrant Neighbors. And links to both can be found in the brief. Local organizations also have Know Your Rights workshops. Something important to remember about home raids is that Generally, consent has to be granted before a home is entered. Now, there's a lot of research about what that looks like, and ICE often comes to the door, you know, pounding on the door or in police vests. So community organizations have Know Your Rights workshops so that folks are aware of their rights when someone is at the door. And these continue to be important, especially to prevent home raids from happening.
2: And on that topic, Zuren, our producer, was part of the National We Have Rights Campaign, organized by the American Civil Liberties Union and Brooklyn
0: Defender Services. Here she is to tell us more. Thank you, Jennifer. So two years ago, in 2018, I was involved in the creation of the We Have Rights Campaign, which is National Immigrant Empowerment Campaign. The campaign centers around four animated videos available in seven languages, English, Spanish, Arabic, Mandarin, Russian, Haitian, Creole, and Urdu. So the videos are based on true stories and very common encounters with ICE. When ICE is at the door, when ICE is inside your home, when ICE stops you in the streets, and what happens when ICE makes arrests.
3: Be sure that you and your loved ones are prepared for encounters with ICE and that you have a plan for what to do if one of you is arrested. You have rights.
1: Remain silent.
3: Ask to speak to
0: a lawyer. And because the series was created with input from legal experts, they do provide very practical tips in terms of what to do when interacting with immigration and customs enforcement.
3: Say you do not agree to their
0: service. How to safely defend your own rights during these encounters or how to locate a loved one after they've been arrested.
3: If a loved one is arrested, you should be able
1: to locate them at locator.ice.gov.
3: If
0: Если арестованы ваши близкие you can find out where they are the website at the locator.ice.gov If And because people are so often at a loss of what to do or how to help this campaign does provide very valuable information.
1: Remember,
3: you can ask to speak to a lawyer even if you don't have one
0: locator.ice.gov.
2: preparado. No tenemos derechos. As we wrap up today's discussion, you might be wondering What's the current state of play with immigration raids? And what can we do to support communities going forwards? Let's get back to Bill and Nicole.
1: One of the most obvious things that we can do, especially coming up in November, is just think about how we're voting and who we're electing. We saw, as Dr. Novak mentioned, 2008 was the largest single-site worksite raid in Postville, Iowa. And about that time is when we stopped conducting worksite raids of this size, President Obama switched to a different type of enforcement style. These raids that are such humanitarian disasters stopped until President Trump began using them again. So it's very important to think about who we vote for and who we elect. While I'm on the theme of who we're electing and who we're voting for, sheriffs are often very important folks to think of, too. And it's a little bit different than thinking of folks who are in raids. But many folks who are deported in these small communities aren't necessarily picked up by ICE. They're picked up by the police, right, for doing everyday things like running a stoplight or running a traffic light. They're picked up by the police for doing everyday things like speeding or running a stop sign. And they end up in local jails, and then the sheriff decides whether they will honor ICE detainers, meaning whether they will keep folks for ICE to pick up later. So it ends up being very important not only to think about who we elect on the national president level, but also who we're electing at local levels. I'd also add that one of the things that we saw across these communities is that organizations would state that the strength of their response was directly related to the strength of their community before. So when organizations had strong relationships with Latino communities prior to raids, they were able to respond quickly and powerfully after raids. So much of the work of responding and mitigating the damage of these disasters is just being a good, strong, and compassionate community to our immigrant neighbors before.
3: And I would just add, both political parties in the U.S. have been kind of complicit with our current immigration enforcement regime. And so even if there is a change in the executive office, there will still be a need for a lot of really pointed you know, vigilance and holding local, state, and federal policymakers accountable to make sure that we're not perpetuating this, this system of enforcement and deportation that is harming so many families.
0: Tell me what the magazine looks like! looks like. Tell me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of Immigration and Democracy. I'm going to get back to reading Bill's fantastic new book, Separated, Family and Community in the Aftermath of an Immigration Raid. And if you would like to follow up by finding out more, check out our website where you can download the brief discussed in today's episode, along with a range of other research reports from the Immigration
0: Initiative at Harvard. If you liked today's conversation, please share it with a friend, give us a rating, or a review. You can send us your comments and questions on Twitter at the handle iih_harvard. underscore Harvard. This show was made possible by the Immigration Initiative at Harvard University. It was produced by Zierin Wang and Jennifer Alsop. Music by Zirin Wang. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Nicole Novak and Dr. William Lopez. And thank you for tuning in.